Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Hi, I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating pride. We speak to the bakers who created a custom wedding cake for Charlie Craig and David Mullins, the couple behind the Masterpiece Cake Shop Supreme Court case. We felt that what happened to Charlie and David was an absolute injustice. Kat Johnson addresses the controversy surrounding Anthony Porosky, Queer Eye's food and wine expert. Many viewers thought these recipes were unsophisticated. And finally, Hannah Forden speaks with nutrition educator Leah Kurtz about the relationship between veganism and queer identity. It's an interesting way in which food can challenge invisible value systems even greater than sexuality does. Listen to Meat and 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E this week, and celebrate Pride with HRN. Available on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite listening apps. Welcome to Why Food, the podcast about innovators, entrepreneurs, and career changers from from other industries into food. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm Jenny Dorsey. And we are so excited to have Julian Pleiter, the pastry chef and founder of Melt Bakery, some of the best ice cream sandwiches I've ever had, and uh, and definitely the best ice cream sandwiches in New York City. Uh, yeah, joining us today. Thanks, Julian. Thank you so much. Glad to be here, guys. And Julian and I go way back. We started we <laughs> parallel but not competing <laughs> ice cream companies together back in 2010. Well, that's how you saw 10. that. Okay, that's good. We'll get back to that later. But um, And since 2010, you've built uh, a pretty significant business, eight years old, locations, two locations in the city, right? One in Manhattan, one in Brooklyn. Two round, two year-round brick-and-mortar locations. Yep, one Lower East Side and one in Dumbo, and Great. then you know seasonal locations, as many as five or six at a time in the in the warmer months. Where are those? We have two carts on the High Line Park, and we participate in a lot of the urban space markets. We're at their Vanderbilt Market near Grand Central. We this season did Mad Square Eats for the seventh year running. Wow. We did uh, Garment District. We're there right now, actually, the Garment District Market, and we've just concluded uh, another run at Broadway Bites. So. And how many ice cream sandwiches do you sell in one summer? Oh, in one whole summer? <laughs> Four million. No, a lot. <laughs> you know, always more every summer than the summer before, so that's good. But this is this summer, well, summer is just starting today, but this spring, anyway, if it's any indication, it's going to be a great summer. We've been, really, been running really hot, so that's really exciting. Cool. Well, um, we usually start with a question about your aha moment, but now uh, even I, different. yeah, we're reformulating. So nice. you'll be our uh, 
guinea pig for the week. But um, as we talked a little bit over lunch is uh, businesses, starting a business is a series of many decisions, thoughts over a long period of time. Um, can you take us to a scene where uh, you had like a profound moment where you realize whether this is what I want to do. I know I'm doing something right. I'm terrified and I'm doing something wrong. Um, something that you know, really sticks out to you in that decision making process. Yeah, the, if I were to point at a moment like that, I think that it would actually be one of relief at having committed to the decision. Mm -hmm. When I had been working in the arts for, you know, over eight years, I was riding the Staten Island Ferry, and I'd been toying with this idea of forever <laughs> of switching to a career in food. is obviously a huge passion of mine, as was music, and as it still is. And my, as often happens with me, and it's one of those things that no one else can ever see, but my left eyelid twitches like crazy when I'm really stressed out, especially <laughs> about a heavy decision, especially about one that's long in the making. And as I'm on the Staten Island Ferry, you know, I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go. I don't know what it was about the Staten Island Ferry, maybe the ambiance, the wonderful food. The Why beautiful. were you on the Staten Island Yeah, Ferry? were you going to Staten Island or poor man's stat Poor man's Statue of Liberty tour. Like just, you know, <laughs> yes, probably yes, had a yes. friend in town and was on it. And I I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to culinary school. I'm going to switch careers. I'm going to do it. And my literally right then my eyelids stopped twitching. So I'm like, okay, that's a sign. Did you say it out loud or you said it yourself <clears throat> in your head? I said it to my friend who I was with. That's crazy. I'm like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to culinary school. And what did he say? I, you know, I don't remember. I was just so relieved that my eyelids stopped twitching <laughs> after so many weeks that that was all I needed. So that was my own confirmation that it was a good decision. Tell us a little bit about the job that you'd been doing for the, the decade leading up to that. Sure. I worked for the Orchestra of St. Luke's as their personnel manager for just over eight years. I had a degree in piano and a degree, unrelated, degree in French. When I moved to New York, I uh, got the job three days after I landed here, and I landed here for the interview at St. Luke's. Met some amazing people, still know many of them. It's a busy orchestra in Manhattan, so world-class orchestra, world-class music, world-class musicians and people, and really just an amazing experience. And it taught me a huge amount about managing people and about that whole aspect of it. So that was, uh, I mean, of management in general. So that was really, really valuable. And you experience. think those skills have translated to what you do now? You have a staff of 40? 100% they've translated. So an orchestra, you know, being the personnel manager, I was pretty constrained by union rules in terms of what I could do. And my, my function was pretty administrative. But the people I think there came to rely on me also as, as a guiding force for personnel. And that is a huge skill. People is going to be the hardest skill as you build any business. Mm -hmm. If you have quality people, you can go to the moon. It doesn't matter, right? So quality people and managing them well is definitely a skill that, that no business person can find themselves in having an overabundance of. So that I'm very grateful for that experience. Definitely you, great. Can you tell us a couple scenes from where you had the biggest learnings of how to manage personnel, whether it's um, in your uh, previous job or in your role now? Sure. What I find now actually that happens fairly often for me is that I, I speak very decisively and people I think on the whole aren't aren't decisive. And whether I'm decisive <laughs> or not, by the way, is not the issue. I'm not claiming to be decisive, but I speak very decisively. So people hear me say an idea, they hear me say, this is how this is. And that is it. That's to them, it gets written in stone. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm just like spitballing or I'm just like brainstorming. And I'll say these ideas and people will hear it as a definitive, this is how things are now. And this is where we're going. Yep. So that's actually, you know, my, I get carried away with my own enthusiasm and a, a good friend of mine and a former manager at Melt told me one time, he said, you seem passion angry about this. He, he <laughs> combined passionate and angry because I get so worked up and people have a hard time distinguishing 
you know, or, or sussing out whether I'm angry about something or whether I'm just excited. So definitely always learning to be a little more sensitive and understanding that not everybody is on board with my idea in the same way that I am, whether they have to do what I ask them to do or not. So that's a subtler point, a finer point of, of personnel, I think. But yeah. And also giving them the space to kind of figure out how they want to approach it. Right. And let the news land on them and let, let ideas land on them and let them learn organically rather than sort of like, you know, setting it down in front of them. Mm-hmm. And so then after leaving St. Luke's and, and going to culinary school, you wound up uh, cooking at some pretty impressive restaurants and, and eventually becoming the pastry chef at uh, Crosby Street Hotel and, and a couple of other places, if I'm not mistaken. What, what was that transition like going from a, an arts administration job into, into the pastry world? Oh, it was abject terror. It was terror. <laughs> I mean, I was starting out, so I was, you know, here I was in my early 30s and you know, I felt pretty energetic, but then everyone else working around me is 18 and 19. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's no yeah. comparison, you know. So, I feel that, yeah. You know, when I, I, I was really fortunate to land an internship at uh, Le Brenner Dan, and w- that is the most organized and courteous and amazing kitchen I've and ever seen. And Chef Michael's seen. crazy, so. Yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> I, love, I love Michael. I love him. I still see him when I visit ICE where he's teaching now. But um, I, uh, yeah, I was, it was terrifying, and, it, you know, it, it's, it's totally different. And I, I wouldn't characterize my job at the orchestra as sedentary. There was a large sedentary portion because there was a lot of computer work and things. But to go from any degree of sedentary to being a pastry cook in your early 30s, mm-hmm. you're overweight and you have bad knees. Kitchen jobs so are rough. It was yeah. rough. Yeah, it was a really rough transition. And also to go from a pretty stable career and, you know, a salary that, while not, you know, it's a nonprofit, so it wasn't making, you know, six figures or anything, but to go from that to like 10 bucks an hour, well, to go to that, from an, from that to an in, unpaid internship is one thing. And then to get a job at Lever House for 10 and a quarter an hour, mm-hmm. it's a, it was a pretty big transition. So yeah. how did you, I don't know, how, how did you talk yourself into it beyond the Staten Island, the moment on the Staten Island? Yeah. 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 Were you ever like, oh my God, I've done something wrong? <laughs> Oh yeah, I had moments like that all the time where I was like, "This, why am I doing this to myself? I think I think I've given myself some sort of debilitating bone disease. Like I, I don't what this doesn't feel right, doesn't feel healthy." And there were definitely moments where I missed the familiarity and the comfort of a job I'd known and loved for so long. So definitely moments where I questioned if it had been the right decision. Definitely still are. And um, when did you decide after being in restaurants, like? You know what, this is great, (laughs) but now that I've figured this out, (laughs) I'm going to do something different. Yeah, now that I've established a modicum of stability for myself, (laughs) I'm really good at pulling my own carpet out from under myself. And then you're like, whoa. Really, it's this flexibility. But so I was working at Crosby Street Hotel. I'd been the opening pastry chef there in 2009. And I lived in Inwood for 19 years in northern Manhattan. And at the time, there was no place to get quality muffins. There was one big chain coffee store that has muffins or whatever. And then I wouldn't really call those muffins. I think that's being generous, but people just wanted a place where they could go get a morning pastry, a decent coffee. Didn't have to be, you know, locally grown and roasted, pour over anything. It just had to be decent. Mm -hmm. And there was a space I'd been eyeing. So I wrote this giant business plan to do that. Uh, But I felt really, I felt really experienced just enough and excited about the possibility of executing a vision I was pretty clear on. And that thought just sort of accumulated. And it's like a snowball effect. It's like it starts out as a snowflake in your brain. And you're like, hmm, I wonder if I could do that. And then it's like, you know, I could do that because I know how to make this and this and this. And I know how to manage people. 
and I know how to smile and I know what people, I know how to keep stuff simple and I know what people like and you get these ideas and so your confidence kind of adds speed to it. And I was pretty sure that by pretty early in 2010, I was pretty sure that I wanted to, I was ready to start formulating an exit plan. And how did you decide on ice cream sandwiches? That had been one idea in this business plan that I had written about this bakery. I wanted to have classic things like breads and pies and tarts, and I wanted to have an ice cream sandwich bar. And my then my friend Kareem, now still my friend, fortunately, and also my <laughs> business partner, we managed to be business partners and friends, um, he said, you know, nobody in New York is really focusing on just ice cream sandwiches. You've got this great business plan for this bakery. It's well thought out. You've done your demos. You've done your market research. You've figured out the finances and how much you're going to need to start up. What if you took almost no money and started just ice cream sandwiches and just see what happens? And if it's successful, that could be a cash cow for starting your own bakery or whatever other business you want to do. So we eventually became business partners, and we decided to just do ice cream sandwiches. And here we are. <laughs> were you, were you, um, how did you feel when he said that? Like, were you like, no, or, you know, it's, it was turning back on, on a lot of the ideas that you had for yeah. this business. Right. Well said. And I, that turning back on it is exactly how it felt. And I felt very, I felt like it was yet another delay mm -hmm. to the dream that I had of executing this artisanal bakery, making breads and sourdoughs and all sorts of stuff. So it felt like a delay in a sense, but I saw his logic in it. He's very good at the logic part of stuff. I'm very good at the emotional part of stuff. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so it, it kind of made sense. And it also involved not fundraising at all. The plan that he laid out didn't involve going way out on a limb farther than I already knew I was going to be, leaving a job. And so it made sense. So I thought, well, why not? Let's try it. Let's see. And, and what were the first steps to, to make that happen? Well, we... Kareem lived on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, so obviously easy commute for me, right? Um, but <laughs> All the way we, down from Midway. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, the Hester Street Fair was in its first season, and he lived on Hester Street. So he saw this happening. He saw this going up. He saw people getting really involved in it. He saw the, all this buzz about it. It was really exciting times. So it seemed like a really great place to test a concept with, test a concept with very little input, generally speaking. So that's kind of how we ended up, ended up on the Lower East Side. And how did you finance this to start? <laughs> well, <laughs> finances were, that's part of the brilliance of the plan of the way that we started. And, and we did not have a bunch of seed money. We didn't go around and bootstrap with our friends and family. We didn't get crazy investors. We didn't even get non-crazy investors. We didn't borrow any money. We, you know, I cashed in my retirement account, uh, just have a little bit to live on. And that was not a lot. Um, my partner at home was super supportive, too, and covering the home stuff. I had about 350 bucks in liquid cash. We had some, <laughs> yeah, we had some, uh, some freezers and such and other equipment on credit cards, fortunately. But I had took 350 bucks and I, I went and bought ingredients with it. I rented a day in a commercial kitchen in Chelsea, and we paid for our table at the Hester Street Fair. I think I used the last 12 hour, $12 to buy some, like, iron-on transfers for our T-shirts, <laughs> you know? And there we were, and that was it. And that's actually how we've run the business ever since then. We just used the profits from that day to buy more ingredients, to pay for another day in the kitchen, to do it all again. And it's been a slow and arduous model to follow. But at the end of the day, Kareem and I own the equity all by ourselves. We don't have any debt. We don't even need to be breathing down our neck. And our priorities can be on food and on opportunity. And we don't have the burden of a priority being paying people back, which is a gift. That's a really, really huge accomplishment 
um, that I attribute largely to Kareem's partnership. Oh. And to, to sort of go back in time a little bit, you grew up with food being a really part, important part of your family life. You were going to, over lunch, you started to tell us a story about a tomato, and then we got distracted. So, <laughs> so tell us the tomato story, and tell us about your, your relationship with food as a kid. Well, what, you know, I, I did grow up in a family. We always gardened together, and my mom has been a big baker. My, she's always been a great baker. Her cinnamon buns and sticky buns are like local legends in my hometown. <laughs> and my dad's a great cook, too. We, we really grew up eating, and family dinner time, I, you know, I'm really blessed and fortunate to come from a, a strong, you know, nuclear family, and I, there's all kinds of families, and I love mine, and I'm glad that I got to experience it the way I did. They made dinner time a huge priority. We would sit and we would eat dinner. And I think what, if the Staten Island Ferry moment was the last moment in the process of deciding, the first moment in the process of deciding was this tomato. And I had been visiting one summer, and my mom's making a salad and asks me to cut up this tomato, hands me this tomato, and I'm looking at this tomato like, what is this thing? It is the most perfect food I've ever seen. How old were you? Oh, you know, 31, okay. 32. <laughs> so my childlike innocence was fully brought to bear. But I, um, I not to wax too poetic about it, but what... What I noticed about it as I sliced it and as I ate it, it it just tasted alive. It tasted so fresh and it tasted so... It just really tasted magical. I could taste sunshine in it. It was so, so good. And I said, well, where did you get this tomato? Like, where do you buy vegetables like this? She goes, oh, I, I picked it. I grew it. And I'm like, all right, I got to do food. So that's when that whole thing started. <laughs> I was like, I got to do food. Something Like, if something to, to if something can stop a 32-year-old who generally has his head screwed on somewhat tightly <laughs> to stop in his tracks and reevaluate his life. I'm like, okay, I got to try this. So that was sort of the beginning of the, the uh, concept. Can you take us to the first day of uh, the Hester Street Fair? I mean, we were talking a little earlier um, at lunch about uh, objectivity and how do you remain objective when this is your baby, mm -hmm. you've worked so hard, you quit your job, you're standing at a table with your last few dollars family recipes Fail. on display to the the yeah. not very friendly general public yeah. yeah and they're eating it and you can see their reaction <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah what was that like terrifying it's <laughs> all about terror maybe that's the theme is terror. no i mean it was whole podcast. <laughs> right it's it definitely was it's very difficult i think when you're starting a food business to be to be objective coming from another career where it's somebody else's product it's you know you do your work successfully or you don't Coming into a food career, very often you're going to be using a family recipe or a food you grew up loving or something like this. It's very hard to be objective about that because unshakably, when I started that first day at Hester Street Fair, I, I, you could not have shaken the belief from me that my mother's chocolate chip walnut cookie was a good recipe. I knew it was a objectively an objectively good cookie. So it was very hard. And even as I talk about it now, I am not being objective about it. It's very hard to be objective about something when you, when especially baked goods, right? And food, it's, it, it is emotional. Mm -hmm. It's emotional for us. The first time you tasted filet mignon, you might've reacted a certain way. The first taste, the first taste you had of really good champagne, it is an emotional moment. Mm -hmm. So by its very nature, it's difficult to be objective. Bring into it like your grandmother's favorite molasses cookie. It's like, okay, well, how can I say that this isn't good enough for the general discerning public in New York? So it was it it's difficult to be objective. When you know, when we had a little track behind us, when we when we had a little data to work with, then it's easier to be objective and it's like to say, well, what sold last year and what didn't? Then yeah. you can start to make decisions based on numbers like an entrepreneur should. Yeah. 
And uh, what did you do when the numbers, when the data didn't match up with your, your <laughs> emotional connection to your food? Yeah, I, well, I don't know. I'm, I've gotten much better at being objective <laughs> now. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, it was definitely, it's, it always felt a little devastating when it's something you know is so good and you love so much and people trash it or they write a bad Yelp review and mm-hmm. say it's this way or that way. And it's like, okay, well. So you kind of evolve and it, it, the objectivity actually comes to me sometimes less about the actual food itself as it does about the process. So be more objective about somebody going on a rant on uh, Yelp or whatever. That's easier for me to be objective about because I can, I can turn to empathy for that and say, well, maybe they had a bad day. Maybe they just don't like this flavor. Maybe, you know, there are a host of other factors that could be it. It doesn't actually have to mean that I have a bad cookie. So I have to cling to that subjectivity of having a good cookie. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll be back with Jillian Pleiter, pastry chef and founder of Milk Bakery. Thanks. Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Welcome back. Today we're here with Julian Pleiter, the pastry chef and founder of Melt Bakery. And uh, we're changing things up a little bit after the break. We usually go right back into what we're talking about. But today we're going to do some quick fire questions so that our audience can learn a little bit more about you. So I'll kick it off with uh, what kind of eggs do you like or how do you like your eggs? Chicken. Oh, (laughs) I had a goose egg for the first time recently. (gasps) Off topic. Yeah, go ahead. How do you you like your eggs? (laughs) If I'm eating eggs, mm-hmm. slowly, very, very, very slowly scrambled. <laughs> oh, with milk? No, butter. Mm. Butter and salt and scrambled really slowly, like half an hour. Oh. I call them dad eggs. That's how my dad makes <laughs> scrambled eggs, and it's the only way to eat eggs. Why, what, how do they come out? Just creamy and delicious and soft and no crispy and glistening, like not dry. They're yeah. so good. Yeah. Do they have toppings, like chives or anything? No, like pepper, probably. Okay. Pretty purist. Very simple. Yeah. My dad grew up on an egg farm, on a chicken farm, so he knows how to work eggs. Oh. Um, (laughs) What is, what are your favorite and least favorite ice cream flavors? Vanilla is my very favorite ice cream flavor. Oh, me too. My least favorite, and this is going to sound so bizarre, and it's really true, is cookies and cream. It makes Mm. my... That seems like it. Mm. Yeah, it makes my blood curdle. Your I'm whole just, business is crazy. Cookies <laughs> just not in that form. Well, it's a weird thing because I it's I say it's my least favorite. When I t- when I actually taste it, I'm like, oh, that's not too bad. But I don't ever go back to it. I don't. It, I don't know something about it. I must have had an experience with it as a kid. Probably once it gets melty, you know, it's like got a lot of grit in it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. How do you feel about Halo Top? 
I, you know, <laughs> so look, I when I when I came to New York, there, I don't know if they're still around, but there was Tasty Delight. Yeah. Oh yeah, I remember them. Yeah, Where, right. Are so, they, they're not frozen yogurt. No, they're they're. I don't know that there was anything you could use a word like yogurt <laughs> about with that. <laughs> I don't know how much it was natural, but you know, it was it was airy, lightly flavored, frozen, sweet food. Yep. <laughs> product and so I mean I feel like that's I feel like it's a bit similar I feel like Halo Top's a bit similar it's and I I do respect as somebody who was a chronic overeater as a kid that they put the value of the whole can like the whole can yeah yeah on the calorie number of the whole can on on you know on prominent display because they know that you're going to eat the whole can yeah, so, yeah. um how do you spend a Sunday afternoon Oh, an ideal world Sunday afternoons are spent in the woods with my dog. Oh, what yeah. kind of dog? He's a Pomsky. He's half Pomeranian, half Husky. Oh, my God. And he's all white. He has a little champagne, but he is gorgeous. Oh. He's just a year old, and he's his name is Kazuki, and he's the sweetest thing. He's oh, my God. never Why aggressive. is he not here today? I know. I should have brought him, <laughs> except I came from work. I don't know if I'm allowed to have him at the kitchen. Probably not. Um, what was your... Uh, least well-received ice cream sandwich? Ike. It was called Ike, named for Isaac Newton, named for Fig Newton. Really <laughs> on a stretch on that one. The cookie was almost as much of a stretch. It was like a crunchy sugar cookie with roasted fig ice cream. And fig is very difficult to get to read because it's such a mild flavor. It's really hard to get it to read an ice cream and then to put it with anything else, like a cookie of really any kind. It just tasted kind of like crunchy nothing. Um, you also put lots of funny names on your ice cream sandwiches. What was the, the craziest, uh, funniest name that you've come up with? Ike, probably. Okay. <laughs> no, that for this year, actually, number six is one we're going to feature in November, October or November. I can't remember which month it's on, but it's a maple ice cream with a candied walnut cookie. And it's called number six because in 1938, when he founded his restaurant, it was the sixth best-selling flavor of ice cream. That was Howard Johnson. Okay. Oh. I think I have the year right. I should fact check that. But um, what did you grow up eating as, for lunch as a kid? I was always a huge fan of American cheese. So like, I <laughs> ate a lot of school lunches, but if I was making my own, it'd be like an American cheese sandwich. With just American cheese? Well, probably in mayonnaise, because I'm a big fan. <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> but yeah, basically school lunch fare and probably American cheese sandwiches. Or tuna. I love tuna with American cheese on it. Mm. Tuna salad. Big favorite. And last question, what's the uh, best ice cream you've eaten that's not yours? Ooh. Salted caramel by Wright Creamery, San Francisco. Mm, Classic. Classic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's <laughs> to get back to some slightly more serious issues. Um, I know that felt pretty serious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a hard <laughs> Let's do one, maybe one more fun one. If you could have a superpower, oh, yeah. what would it be? Fluency in all languages. Oh, oh that's good a good answer. one. I don't think that's anybody's said that mm -hmm. before. Yeah, mm -hmm. good answer. What would you? Because would then you that do? would lead to Star Trek, and then I could, you know, lead to Star Trek. Oh, I didn't see. I didn't see that jump. Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nerd thing. You know? um, so let's talk about creativity. You've worked sure. in in several creative industries, your own business, uh, working as a pastry chef for other people, and in music. Um, what are some of the common threads that you've seen across those different positions and across those those industries that are built around creative expression? I think that the way people receive any artistic or creative effort, let's not even say artistic, but let's say creative effort. I think that that to me is a really important guiding principle in terms of how you exercise your creativity. People like things that are creative, but not too creative, mm -hmm. especially if you're trying to broadly appeal to someone. So this is why if you go to see a symphony composed 35 days ago at Carnegie Hall, there are not going to be that many people there. 
you go to see Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and it's going to be a packed house. Mm-hmm. People like that familiarity. And of course, when Beethoven wrote that symphony, it was very creative. So it's always about judicious execution. It's about being very judicious about how you express that creativity, how far out you're willing to go, admitting to yourself, and this comes back to the objectivity question, right? Is this good to me? Is it good to my audience? Is it good to... And now, of course, eight years in, we have a lot more data to draw on and say, well, what's sold well and what hasn't? So I can tell that, you know, duck liver ice cream is not going to go well (laughs) or whatever it happens to be. Um, Do you think that's a decision that you consciously made going into um, any of the careers that you had? Or it's something that you've kind of discovered as that job evolved? I don't know that it was a conscious decision necessarily, but it... Hmm. It's sort of easy to figure out if you ask yourself what you like. Mm-hmm. So if you like, say, a duck liver dish, that's something that I, I touch on because duck liver is such a such a pronounced flavor and it's such a specific thing. Yep. Say you eat that because you like it and you're, you know, foodie, if we're using that word still. <laughs> if you're really into food and you, you like that dish, that might be fine. But at the end of the day, you want a vanilla milkshake. You still want a hamburger. You still want something that's comforting and familiar. So even if you have this really weird, and duck liver is not that weird, but if you have the really, this really unusual thing, um, like Wiley Dufresne, right? He would serve sweetbreads at WD-50. Like, he's not eating sweetbreads uh, often. That's not his go-to meal when he wants to eat. He'll eat a steak or he'll eat fried chicken or he'll eat something, quote-unquote, more normal. Mm-hmm. So I think that asking yourself, do I want to listen to a symphony that's composed 35 days ago while I go about my day? Or do I want to listen to Beethoven's five, you know, Beethoven's fifth? Like, what do I want to hear? What do I want to taste? What do I want to experience regularly? So what I experience regularly and broadly in my own life is what the rest of the world might be experiencing at one moment, just very broadly at the same time. So if I'm going to sell ice cream sandwiches to a wider audience, what's going to resonate broadly at, a, at any given moment? And, and in music as in food, um, there's, there's skill, technique, preparation, and there's creativity. And, and I think most people don't realize how, how rarely those two things overlap, right? You, you have a very repetitive uh, job, whether it's playing an instrument, playing the same piece of music several times over and over, sure. or, or preparing the same dish over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you find a, a creative balance, or where do you see the connection between, between skill and, and creativity in music and food? Well, getting those, doing those scales on the piano, doing, you know, doing your mise en place, getting your carrots and your onions and your celery chopped up and ready, and getting your station set up, doing those things over and over and over again till they're rote, that's developing the basic facility and whatever whatever medium you're expressing your creativity. So once you have that facility there and it's it's almost a second nature to you and you really only get that by either being one of 17 somehow strangely gifted people alive at any one time in the world or one of the many, many people who have learned it so, so thoroughly that it's second nature, then you can begin to express yourself creatively and then you can begin to change things here and there and it you can interpret in that way. So your interpretation on a steak, nobody wants to have my interpretation on a steak if I've never cooked a steak before. Yep. If I've cooked 4,000 steaks, then I know a steak well enough, I can start to interpret it. And it's like, oh, did you see what, what Plater did with that steak? You know, or whatever. So it's about, it's about facility and then creating space for yourself to express. 
I think. And how much how much is enough facility? How many steaks <laughs> do you need to have cooked to How many cookies to, well, to, do you have to bake? So to bring another music example into it, Pablo Casals is regarded as one of the greatest cellists that ever lived. And he you know, he was asked when he was in his eighties, you know, so you're regarded as this legend of cello and you still practice six hours a day. Why? Why in your eighties? And he said, I think I'm making progress. <laughs> I think you can never have too much facility. And I think that when you, you know, the more facility you had, who would you rather have a steak from? A guy who's cooked 17 or a guy who's cooked 42,000, you know, like yeah. who's going to do better, who's going to be able to express themselves better. So I don't think you can really ever develop too great a facility on something. And if you, you know, if you practice the same piece or practice the same dish so many times that you're bored, go ahead and move on. Try a different, try a different dish, try a different piece and see how you're, see how much of that facility can carry over. See, then you can kind of broaden your, your repertoire. And can you walk us through a little bit of your creative process when you're thinking about menus for the next year or the next season? Um, how, what, how do you think about the pairings? How do you think about the textures? Um, what flavors do you want to highlight next year? I will say texture, just to get that one out of the way, is pretty secondary to me because, the, because it's always something that I consider, and I think it's often overlooked in pastry. Um, and I know from some of your menus, Ethan, at A&D, like the text, you really played with texture. You really had a broad representation of texture yeah. and stuff. So I think that texture is always easy to bring in. Um, for me, it's, it's got to start with flavor and it's got to start with what combinations make sense. So when we when we launched and we did this beer ice cream, we did Guinness ice cream with salted peanut cookies. Mm. I'm like, well, it seems like, a, you know, you, you go to a bar, you order a beer, you eat peanuts. It seemed like a natural pairing to me. Banana and peanut butter. There's a nice terroir to the, the yeah. beer and peanuts together. <laughs> yeah, right. So the, the combinations, I always think just, well, what goes together? Because also the ice cream sandwich still is a fairly unexplored medium, right? There, it's not something that's, it's not like, cake or something there's been 70 million iterations of yet so there's a lot of territory still to explore and you know it comes into like it's the same way you might run market cuisine say oh well what i found at the market today was really amazing jewels of blackberries then you can sort of say well what can i pull in to really as a vehicle for these what can i pull in to complement them what can i pull in to contrast with them so it's sort of an iterative process, but this year, yeah, the menu this year feels really special to me. And we've had some, uh, you know, ultimately I think our combinations are all classic ones. So in, in May of this year, we did the Luigi, which is a chocolate and dried cherry cookie with pistachio ice cream, wow. chocolate and cherry and pistachios. This is not like a brand new innovation. I might've mixed it up in a new way into an ice cream sandwich, but Gina De Palma was doing chocolate cherry and pistachio at you know Babo 10, 15 years ago. So it's not like it's not it doesn't always feel innovative. I don't want to sell myself short. It's remixing a lot of stuff. And it's when I am innovating, I feel like it's small innovation. And it's it's maybe a new way of expressing something that I know to be a good flavor combination. And when we go out on a limb sometimes, it doesn't go as well. Um, sometimes it does go very well when we go, we're gonna do a honey cookie this fall with a blackberry ice cream like a honeycomb mm -hmm. cookie and I did um there was one flavor that we did a few years ago that it was a gluten-free we did like an almond uh vanilla macaroon type cookie and we did a blackberry violet sorbet and I I don't know why I had the instinct of thinking violet might be good because I'm not super into florals they they're so overpowering mm -hmm. so easily you know but 
tastes like your great grandmother's bathroom if you use just a <laughs> tiny bit too much. But we, you know, I, I really wanted to try this, so I sourced and violet extract is just like beyond yeah. impossible to find. But I found some violet extract, and I just lightly perfumed this blackberry sorbet with it. And I don't. That was one of those moments where it's like. Did I have a good idea I was sitting on, or did I not? And I was. I thought that was one of my favorite combinations that we've mm-hmm. done. So this honey one, florals and honey also play nicely together. So I'm thinking this fall when we do this blackberry ice cream, it might be blackberry violet ice cream that I get to express to a slightly broader audience than the first than the first test batch we did years ago. And um, I mean, you've you've chosen a, a medium ice cream sandwiches that's that is very comforting, right? Reminiscent of childhood and and comfort flavors do you do you feel like that contradicts some of the more adventurous combinations you come up with do people resist because they're ice cream sandwiches where they wouldn't if if it was served in a different form i don't think it contradicts them i actually think it makes them more accessible i think it makes them more approachable because an ice cream sandwich isn't threatening you know it's not like <laughs> eating something that came from the ocean that you do not know what that is and is it looking Spiky at me or is it looking weird at you colors. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. right there's so many variables there so an ice cream sandwich you kind of come from a place of like well i know i can hold it in my hand and i know it's cookies and i know it's ice cream so you come to it from a place of approachability so then it just boils down to well does that sound like i would like those flavors together and then it's or textures together whatever it may be and then that's a pretty straight shot so yeah, I don't think it really contradicts it. I think that it. Uh, I think that it actually makes it even more. You know, it's an easier sell. It's ice cream and cookies. Yeah. What what could really go wrong? You know. You said earlier um, at lunch that you think this menu this year has been your best work. Um, <laughs> why is that? And how have you think? How have you like grown over the years? And why like now looking back at the former menus you've had? Um, yeah, what's changed? Well, I think that there this year there seems to be a kind of balance to it. And I, what I went back to as I was training some of my own team to think about menu balance as they, you know, often a client will say, you know, we want this for a private event. We want 400 ice cream sandwiches. I don't care what the flavor combination. So often my, my sales team will be left up, left up to making that decision of, you know, which four are we going to give them? It's like, well, don't give them a cookie with peanut, an ice cream with peanut butter, a cookie with walnuts and a cookie with pistachios. Like that's too much nut flavors going on. Or this, there's like, you've given them this, but you haven't given, or you've given them cream cheese, ice cream, chocolate, ice cream, strawberry, ice cream, and caramel ice cream. It's like, you have to have vanilla. So I think in training them, I kind of came back to certainly the Crosby street days and some tastings I'd done before that. And other jobs I'd had before that I had some, had the, the good fortune to be able to have a strong influence or at least voice in the menu decisions uh, in the later days at Lever House. And I found myself thinking, well, what makes a balanced menu? What makes it so? And then you've got seasonality. So obviously it's June. we got to highlight local strawberries. Mm-hmm. And we'll have our bramble fruit later in the summer and we have <laughs> these things. So, you know, taking those two things into consideration, looking at each month and saying, okay, you know, you got to have a vanilla, you got to have a chocolate. And I, we've already established at, lo- at lunch anyway that I have to have the red velvet flavor. <laughs> yeah. People just get angry and send me hate mail. <laughs> but um, so it actually, it, it, it does get a little tricky to make and really dial down decisions because ultimately I'm planning menus for our locations around the city, the seasonal locations. That's who I really am planning the menus for. And our location in Brooklyn, we only have four flavors at a time. And I always have the classic flavor and I always have the lovelet, the red velvet flavor. So I really only have two flavors to choose at a time as you would with a seasonal restaurant menu you're always going to have a steak you're always going to have a chicken you know so Mm -hmm. you 
you bring in your seasonal dishes, you bring in your seasonal specials, and they have to contribute to the overall balance and at the same time play on what's seasonal and what makes sense for the season. We've done a s'more flavor a number of times in July because yeah. it makes sense in July to have a s'mores flavor. So I don't know what makes this year different. It seems more vibrant. I'm, I'm, it's a little edgier. It's a little riskier. It's a little more expensive. I think that I'm spending like dried cherries. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Pistachios. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. All in the same sandwich, too. Of course, I can never spread it out. It's got to be one really expensive sandwich to make. But, uh, yeah, it just feels really, it feels really good. And I think that we've been... I know in 2017, we were really analytical about sales data and what sold well, what people like, what did we make that tasted good. So we kind of layer the factual data with the emotional data and say, well, what tastes really good to us? What do people like? Um, and yeah, so far, I mean, it's June, not good, but so far it seems to be a winning menu this year. So July is right around the corner and we're going to have new flavors in July. So That's we'll awesome. see. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I also, we wanted to talk about uh, competition. This is something I alluded to at the very beginning of the, of, of the <laughs> interview, but you and I had um, ice cream businesses at the same time working out of the same rented restaurant kitchen, which is now Mission Chinese, mm-hmm. amusingly enough. But you, know, <laughs> you and I spent many, many nights together in that <laughs> kitchen making, uh, you know, like uh, similarly creative. We were doing very different flavor profiles, but, but both trying to do different different kinds of flavors that hadn't been expressed in ice cream before mm-hmm. or not uh, weren't commonly expressed in ice cream at least and selling at the exact same market you know 15 or 20 feet away from each other we we became friends at the time we've stayed friends since um and you know at that point i was what like 24 years old i didn't know anything and you were incredibly generous and <laughs> patient with my whatever That's i the, the mistakes that i i was making giving me advice uh, making me feel like i was a you know, like I, you trusted my opinion and, and my, my input into what you were making, just mm-hmm. like I was looking for your input and opinions into what I was making. What do you think that is, you know, being a, a now a second-ish, second-ish time entrepreneur myself, mm-hmm. seeing just a, an insane amount of competition mm-hmm. in, even in food. And, and we like to talk about food people are always nice. And that's not, that has not been that's my experience at all. <laughs> I don't know who says um, that. Yeah, yeah right? I don't say that. <laughs> um, people are, people are just incredibly sensitive and defensive yeah. and they're worried that some, that they have some brilliant new idea. Nobody has cagey, any brilliant new yeah. ideas, but, but well, people exactly. are super cagey about their ideas mm-hmm. and don't want to share them. And you have to sign NDAs before they'll, they'll talk to you about anything. Mm-hmm. What do you, what, so I guess, I don't know, what am I asking? This is the long question. How do you question. approach? But how, how have you been so good? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> no, but how, how have you been so good at, at balancing uh, friendship and what would look to somebody else like competition, staying friends with the people who were selling similar products in the same space? Look, I could probably do another degree in accounting and go be really miserable in an accounting firm somewhere. If I can't have fun doing this, like there's no point. I think uh, for me, food should be fun. If it's not your thing to be fun with food, then it's fine. Don't, but it's ice cream and cookies. Like it's gotta be fun. So, you know, I think to draw another corollary to my prior career, which every day seems more and more distant, but I, I do feel like in an orchestra, you know, it's not a competition. It's just different textures and different voices. And, uh, the good conductors that we worked with, the ones who were really good, they stood up there. And while, yes, they're leading things, they're in charge, they also recognize that the collective experience of the 80 people or so in front of them has got to be more than they could fit in their own brain. So in that way, it's also, I felt like, yeah, you say renting the kitchen with you down on East Broadway. Um, oh my God, oh my goodness, it was a long time ago. But they, I... I really appreciated all your insight and knowledge and I feel like we gave each other ideas yeah. and like not only gave but spurred each other on to ideas. It's like 
So in that way, you hear the term friendly competition. Well, what does that really mean? To me, I think I experienced it with you in the sense that we made, I don't know, you at least, your work made me want to be better. And I mean, you had to like, of course, go and add the layer of I'm doing it for social justice, which I'm like, well, I'm just doing this for profit. <laughs> <laughs> I worked for eight years in nonprofit. Like, so, but, uh, you know, I really, I, I feel like I understood what friendly competition meant. And of course, I was very cagey when we first started and Kareem helped calm me down. He's like, be nice. It's blah, blah, blah. And of course, I was coming from kitchens where, you know, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Everybody's not always super hunky and dory and kind and nice. And you, in order sometimes to... When you're running a kitchen, too, you have to bring people to heal sometimes, and that's not always possible to do it timely and be super nice. Mm -hmm. You have to be authoritative. You have to be direct. So I think coming into an environment where the world was my oyster, I was choosing my own path, and I was forging my own way, like, I had to learn to let go of that, that edge of, like, being, you know, being super... Uh, being the best one or being the right one or whatever and learning. And it did harken back to music and listening to people and learning. And I mean, I, I think about our businesses having been together in 2010 at that little fair. I think about it all the time still. And what I learned from you and from Fanny and from our other colleagues there yeah. um, and Simon and Christina at sure. Macaroon Parlor, still really good friends. And actually Simon's birthday is the same as Melt's birthday. Oh, cool. oh wow. June 19th. Yeah. So um, that's, that's always fun. And we still hang out and we still talk and, still give each other ideas and still ask each other who good plumbers are and all sorts of all sorts of shared resources but that really to me um it feels it feels more familial um than it does strictly competitive in the sense that yeah we're sharing market space and in the case of fanny gerson and lani Urkina and us we're next to each other at the High Line. Still. Yeah, yeah, still. We were at the Hester Street Fair, and we are at the High Line now. Our, our cart at 20 seconds, our carts are so adjacent that we had to push them a little farther apart because people thought it was the same business. <laughs> They'd be ordering a paleta and an ice cream sandwich from the same person. I'm like, well, So we pushed them apart a little bit. But, you know, they um, it, it doesn't it still doesn't really feel like competition. Uh, and I speak for myself, maybe, you know, but I make more money if her cart wasn't right next to mine, or would she make more if mine wasn't there? Probably a little. Mm -hmm. um, but I like I like the offering too. I like the array of choices, and it's, it still it still feels like a good balance. And I'm really still grateful for Kareem pulling me <laughs> pulling me down and nudging me like, "Listen, dude, just like relax. You don't have to be competitive about everything. Like we're all going to get along." And we did, and we still do. It's, yeah. That's a real gift. And I think also we all probably did better making the Hester street fair sort of a destination for cool ice cream mm -hmm. between sure. you and, and me and Fanny, we were all doing kind of adventurous flavors in familiar forms. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember just being struck at the time by how we could both have long lines at the same, literally at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also having the, the kind of professional envy that comes, I think with any business like, Oh, Julian's got to figure it out. All he has to do is hand somebody a nice cream sandwich. <laughs> he doesn't have to scoop and do toppings and all this nonsense that I was putting myself through. Uh, yeah. I, I don't you know, know. You didn't see me the other uh, 110 hours a week. Actually, you did see me I the did. other 110 oh, hours a week. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think there's always yeah. right. Exactly what you're saying. This, this, uh, both explicit and implicit education that takes place, learning from spending time with somebody and, and talking to them, but also just watching them, figure out similar problems to the ones that you're figuring. Sure. Well, and the beauty of doing that in, a, in the context of food is I also get to eat your right. ice cream. <laughs> I got to eat, eat her ice cream and her, her paletas. Yeah. And you learn a lot that way too. And I, I know for a fact that I ate more of your ice cream than I did my own. Yeah, that likewise, summer. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, so 
it's it, that's the that's a really fun aspect of that of that friendly competition. So um, speaking about learning, can uh, you mentioned over lunch that you've been mm-hmm. teaching other food entrepreneurs how to start their hopefully start their own business? Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the advice you tell them? And uh, yeah, if you could tell yourself your former self some yeah. advice, what would you say? Oh well, I would have an endless stream of advice for any <laughs> of my former selves, but. Um, no, yeah, Kareem and I, when we started Melt, we were really passionate about education, we really, and we still are. Um, it's not part of our business model anymore, but we had been teaching little startup business classes just because, as anybody who's worked in food in New York knows, there's just so much legislation, and it's not all consistent, and it's mm-hmm. really, really hard to figure out. So we took this knowledge, and I think, you know, we didn't try, weren't trying to make a million dollars on it. We are trying to just you know, get some money for our time and really help people and really empower people. And some of them have gone on to do really amazing projects. Our friend Sandy Lee, who does Leckerly, her her Lebkuchen is just, it's outstanding. It's an outstanding product and it's really well placed. But, you know, I still have friends that I met back at those classes, as you say, who is like, what advice do I give them now? And they haven't, some of them haven't started yet. I'm like, guy, if you're gonna do this, just do it. Like you have to take the plunge at some point. Or just admit to yourself that it's like you just like doing it in a certain way as a hobby or whatever. But people, people, especially when they're changing careers, you know, you like I said earlier, you've been managing somebody else's product in one way or another. So now you're managing your own product. So you've got you've got the, the burden of this almost impossible objectivity to obtain and or to attain, I should say. And then on top of that, you've got to, you know, you've got to. You feel like you've got to plan out every little thing. You're used to data. You're used to numbers. You're used to quanti- you know, quantifying and qualifying all your things. So you're going to go through everything and you're going to make it as bulletproof as you can. And there's the temptation to do that. So you feel secure about this pretty significant decision you're making in terms of the direction your life is going. But you kind of have to go with your gut a little bit and say, well, if it's you know, if I need all that data to really validate it, yeah, you want to have some data. You don't want to jump, you know, headlong into something if you're not sure it's going to be profitable or has the potential to be profitable. But no amount of work you do beforehand is going to really impact its potential for profitability like the work you do once you're doing it. Mm-hmm. That's when you can do it. You can you just say that again? No. I think that's so important. <laughs> yeah. No amount of work you could do beforehand is going to impact the potential for profitability as much as any of the work you do yeah. once you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, you have to also be responsive. If people don't like the cinnamon rolls that were your great-grandmother's recipe and your family loves and people don't like them, you that doesn't mean you can't have a cinnamon roll bo- like company. Like, do it. You want to do it, do it. But you have to react. You have to decide, well, okay, what do I need to tweak so that people like this? How much should I not make crunchy sugar cookies and roasted fig ice cream so people will buy my products, you know? <laughs> and, you, and with Food in New York, you talk about competitive industry. Yeah. You don't often get a second chance with people. Yep. So you want to learn, you want to be able to make decisions that are prudent and that are appealing and that get people hooked the first time. So you can come in and say, here it is. I've tasted it. I love it. I would go back. That's New York. That's food in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what are some of the other um, challenges that your students have, have faced in, in these classes that you teach and, and what advice have you given them? Well, I mean, I think the main one is just taking the plunge. Yeah. That's definitely that's definitely the big one. And then the other thing, which we touched on a bit earlier, and I might have even segued into earlier, is this objectivity and trying to disassociate your emotional connection with the food, which is really impossible. But asking yourself, 
does this appeal? Get people to taste it. And that's another advice, a piece of advice that we gave a lot of people is like, listen, you want it. We, we had one student who wanted to open a muffin shop. She really wanted to do like an internet cafe. This is back like eight years. So there were still some internet cafes, I guess, but <laughs> uh, she wanted to do muffins, you know? And I said, okay, what's the most, what is the largest number of muffins you've ever done? You know, made in a batch. And she's like 14. Or I'm like, okay, here's what I need you to do. Just to see if this is a good idea. Invite every person you know one Sunday or one Saturday over for brunch. Be like, muffin brunch. And I want you to make like 200 muffins. Yep, yep. First of all, see what it's like to make 200 muffins. Because I'll tell you something. It's a lot different than making mm-hmm. 15 muffins. Yeah. Yes. And then also get people to be honest and get people to be objective. Uh, one, one young entrepreneur that I had worked with in ice cream you know, it sent around an email and said, hey, guys, will you guys all write positive Yelp reviews for us? And I wrote back to him and I'm like, listen, anybody who reads Yelp is going to smell these things a mile away. It's yeah. going to feel like a shill. It's going to look like a shill. There's no way around it. Do not solicit reviews from your friends. And I, I, I really care about this guy. And I was like, listen, I'm giving you this piece. I'm going to be very harsh, but I'm giving you this piece. Do not solicit reviews. You, that is shooting yourself in the foot. You want objective feedback. So soliciting positive reviews from people who love you is the exact opposite. It's heaping even more terrible, terrible <laughs> subjectivity <laughs> onto your work, you know? So it, it, it's just only going to, at, at best, it's only going to delay the process of you becoming objective about what you're doing. Yeah, so. I mean, we were talking about Instagram um, earlier when we were about to walk into the studio, and it's you have a very hard rule about no buying followers yeah, and no. no no buying engagement, which is very popular mm-hmm. now because it just looks like you're getting all this positive reinforcement right. when perhaps your content isn't even engaging. Well, it's a little oligarchic, if I'm being <laughs> honest. It'd be the people then with the biggest, if that's all it boils mm-hmm. down to, the people with the biggest budgets then get the biggest well, following and make the most progress, right? So... Again, I think that it can it can stink of that too. I think that you can sort of tell when somebody's got a meh kind of Instagram feed, but they somehow have a hundred thousand followers. Yep. It's like, well, good for you. But again, you know, it's it's in the states. It's like if you have a hundred thousand followers, sometimes sometimes appearance yeah. matters a little more than substance. So sometimes you have to play the game. Sometimes you have to play the game. Yep. I will not. I will not pay for followers on social media. <laughs> that's not that important of a game to me. So I think that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. And hopefully we have 10,000 followers by the end of the month. That would be great. And get that little check mark all organically. It would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, can you tell um, our listeners where they can find you on social media? Sure. It's like melt bakery on everything. So facebook.com slash melt bakery, Twitter and Insta are at melt bakery. Melt bakery. M E L T B A K E R Y. Yep. Yeah. Too wise. Just kidding. There's right. not too wise. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what about you? Where can people follow you? Well, or my they can follow me at Melt. I actually you're, don't. You're hidden behind. I the, don't. Yeah, I really use social media in my own life to watch my brother's children grow up. Um, Post yeah. pictures of your dog. And my cousins. Every Aww. once in a blue moon. I don't. Did you see my Instagram feed? <laughs> you saw all four of my posts of my dog and of my feed. Oh, I did some avocados once. Oh, nice. nice. Oh, okay. I, I have the, these most amazing ripe. Uh, you know, when you work in pastry, you get good at selecting fruit. I'm actually really proud of my ability to pick ripe fruit from any market. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like 
I see the guys looking at me and like they'll, I'll be choosing pairs. And if I can, I'm trying to leave a thumbprint in it. And the guy is like looking at me like, what are you doing to my pairs? I'm like, listen, if I can put my thumbprint in it, I'll take it with me. So don't worry. I'm not going to leave you a bruised pair. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I usually use, I usually use social media to watch my, my cousins and I grew up very close together and they have a bunch of kids and my brothers have kids. So I, like, I kind of use that for my family stuff mm-hmm. and I'm expressing myself uh, through melt social media when it comes to following me. They can follow me if they want on Instagram. It's just Julian Flighter. It's easy. And if people want to take uh, any of your, your entrepreneurship classes, do you well, still we, teach those? Yeah, we don't. We, we had to take it kind of out of the business model, and especially now as we're kind of inflecting, and it's just a, probably our busiest season so far. Um, I'm just focusing on the road ahead where that's concerned. It does remain a passion of mine and I get you know I get outreach from people and I, I talked to a guy this summer who's actually going to be starting he wants to start an ice cream company with his wife and they want to start at Hester Street Fair and we went out to lunch and like I talked him through some stuff and I'm happy to do that when I can find time which yeah. is depressingly rare as you guys know it's you know it's constant you're constantly moving around but um, always happy to offer what advice I have time to um, not afraid of having more people in the marketplace my snickerdoodle recipe just more has friends. been published. Right. Yeah. My recipes have been published on places like, and it's what we do is not complicated. Yeah. So in that sense, I never, I never worried too much. What you did was not complicated. Anybody could Except do for that roast. Stuff anybody, <laughs> that, well, that was cool, it wasn't, but <laughs> it had cinnamon in it. I remember it. Yeah, yeah, I remember it. I remember <laughs> it. I'm not kidding. Wow. But the, um, <laughs> the, um, you know, it's duplicable. Anybody can yeah. see, oh, well, he's taken two snickerdoodles and put it around cinnamon ice cream. Guys, anybody can figure out how to do that. So it's how you do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that I worked actually a year on that snickerdoodle recipe. Like I tweaked it over the course of a year to try to make it better and better and better. And fortunately, I had done that in, in a restaurant job prior to arriving at Melt. So Melt <laughs> didn't have to bear the burden of that R&D. But um, it's duplicable. Anybody could say, oh, I can make a sundae with this ice cream and this topping and this topping. They can do it. But there's there's the je ne sais quoi. There is that magic element of you having done it mm-hmm. that makes it exclusively yours. So you kind of, I'm, I'm open-handed with stuff. And you can, anybody can look at my website and see the components of what I'm doing. Yeah. Anybody can figure out how to make malted chocolate rum ice cream if they really want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you kind of... How far do you take that? You know, like being signing NDAs and stuff. It's right. like, you know, how far can you take that? Well, the, the specialness of grabbing that ice cream when it's hot outside from your car, you know, uh, walking along the high line that you can't replicate just doing at home. Right. And our team, too. That's what I will say. The sales team this year, all of our teams this year and every year, they keep evolving. And I feel this year, like all of the teams we have in place and all of our departments are rock solid and it's a part of the brand, too. So that's definitely a, that's definitely a factor. Yeah. All right. Well, Julian, it has been such a pleasure <laughs> catching up, um, yeah, especially with all of these other people listening in on our conversation. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, thanks. And, and I hope uh, our listeners find your carts on the High Line and, and all around the city this summer. I hope so, too. Thanks so much for having me, guys. And uh, if you have any questions, comments for Julian or for us, you can always email us at at YFoodPodcast on Facebook, Instagram, and at YFood at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks to uh, the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind, and to Vitor Hirsch and David Tadishor for being awesome engineers. Catch you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Well, that's history of my life.